Welcome to this episode of Tech Lasso. I'm Christopher Hong, and I am here today with Scott Moss. Hello. You and the audience right now, I want to ask you, what is your identity? Well, I think identity is a concept that changes uh, from moment to moment. But I think of myself as a uh, a father, a husband, kind of a, a white cisgendered male. Right now, my identity is connected to my, my education as I'm a doctoral candidate in the last throes of my dissertation. So that's been uh, taking up my time and, and I, I associate with being a, you know kind of a scholar at this time in my life. Very much similar to you. I am Asian American male, husband, father. All this helps shape and guide what I do, which I'm pretty sure it's the same for you. It guides who you are, what you're doing, and where you're going. However, there's a new, relatively new term that I've just recently heard about. And I think you're the one that brought it up. It's STEM identity. STEM identity is a unique term. For those of you who don't know, STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It's a very common term in the K-12 sector, K-16 if you include the colleges. And for today's episode, we brought in two different individuals. We brought on Ella Farinas and Dr. Tutule Nintoya to introduce themselves and just have a discussion regarding STEM identity and identity in general. Hi, my name is Ella Farinas. I am an instructional coach and STEM specialist for the Pasadena Unified School District. First and foremost, I am a teacher. I am a STEMinist. I am a femtor. And that just means that I care very deeply about STEM equity. I also coach instructional coaches in my district. And I really work with K-12 teachers on integrating STEM across the curriculum. I'm also a doctoral candidate working on my EDD for educational leadership for social justice. That doesn't make me an expert, but it just means it's really important to me. I'm already going to brand it right now. You're the expert. My name is Dr. Tutu Ntoya. When I graduated from USC and I was thinking about, well, what's the intersection of my work? Like, how do I integrate Black students and how do I integrate STEM? And what does that look like? And, you know, I was trying to rack my brain. And now it's like, whoa, it's all kind of coming together. I work with schools around STEM integration. Makerspaces is my jam. I love being able to infuse makerspaces and all content. And my identity is, a, is as a STEM person. I was an environmental science major in undergrad. We would go into the field and we would do like actual examinations. So we did determination and we did a bunch of chemical analysis and this, that, and the other. And I did my senior project on bald eagle nesting sites in the Klamath Basin, which was amazing. I got to go up in these forest and measure bald eagle nests or trees and stuff. So I've always been into STEM. I've always been kind of that person who can go in and get my hands dirty with science. And when I got a chance to be a science teacher, it was just kind of a culmination. All the pieces came together. And this STEM identity conversation is really near and dear to my heart. My dissertation was on STEM integration in K-12. I'd never heard STEM in this. What was the other one you said? I, that's an, those are new oh. terms for me. I love that. STEM tour. So like, STEM, uh, yeah, instead of mentor. So I guess I should have said also that like, I very much identify as an Asian American woman and an instructional leader and as a Filipina American. I think all those pieces make up who I am. Just all of my lived experience has created my identity today. Wonderful. Love it. Own that. Oh my God, so good. <laughs> <laughs> and identity is not so static, right? So I feel like it's always changing and I'm just, I, I'm just adding more and I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's exciting. 
Dr. Anatoly, I need to read your dissertation on STEM integration. I, I just want to know, how does that play a role in the K-12 sector, and what type of research has been done around STEM identity? There is a lot of work on STEM identity, but in the K-12 space, like we, we hardly ever have the time to even think about STEM identity. We're too busy thinking about pedagogy, thinking about scope and sequence, thinking about what's all, what we don't even like STEM identity. That's yeah. And can I, I just want to say also, like, we're so worried about teaching our kids how to read. And by all means, that is absolutely valuable. But we also have to stop and think about other ways that we're reaching our students and making content accessible to them. There's so much focus for the most part. And this is mostly for, let me talk about K-5. The focus is mostly on literacy and math, right? And I taught first grade, like I had a two-hour literacy block. And I just had to get really creative in how I brought STEM into it. Developing that STEM identity, it can be done throughout the entire day, not just during your your science lesson, but it can be done throughout the entire day, during your literacy block, during history, in a PBL unit. Everything's integrated because we don't learn. We, we, we shouldn't be learning content in silos, in isolation, because that's not how the world is. In real life, everything is integrated. It's just so interesting when you say like K-5, because my daughter's in third grade and every day I ask her, mm-hmm. how is school? What did you do? What's going on? And she's like, oh, we do the same thing every day. I'm like, okay, honey, you need to tell me what happened today. And it's always, oh, we did English before recess. We did math after recess. Then we did PE or we did something else or history, but you really hear science or computer or something like that. Or my daughter would be like, oh, we play Blook It today. I'm like, okay, what are you doing with Blook It? And she's like, oh, we're playing math games or we're playing reading games. And you don't hear so much about the science, the technology, the engineering, the math or any of that. It's always how do we gamify math and English? It's yeah. more that than anything. When I ask my daughter what she likes to do or who she is, she's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just a kid. I just like to play. I just like to have fun. And then I'm like, what do you want to be in the future? I want to be a ballerina. I want to be a ballet teacher. I want to be an art teacher or any of those things. But I never hear her talking about science, technology, engineering, math, or STEM or any of that. And that makes me a little sad just because I've seen where STEM can go. And I was a pre-med before I switched into education. I know it's a huge component. And everyone in my family are engineers or something along those lines, I'm like, we need more of those. And especially females, everyone in my family that is an engineer is male. Anyone in my family that is a medical doctor or something is male. Yeah. And thinking about when does that identity start? I'm just thinking about when my identity started as a STEAM person. I was an environmental science major and I always liked, I always loved STEM type of activities. I love watching National Geographic's on TV. I loved, you know, if if I could and we had phones back then, I would have used my parents' phone and did like a documentary on the little animals in my yard. That's 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 what I'd love doing, but we didn't really go into much of that. Like when I'd go read books, I'd get books about lions and tigers, things like that, but I never got to do a deep dive in school. And I can't remember. I don't remember when we started looking at science in those terms. So I, if it wasn't for you know me just kind of watching things on TV and I don't know where my STEM identity would have would have started. I have a question for you, Tatul. I'm wondering, when did you start developing? Like, I know you've been watching things, right? But when did you first start stating that you had a STEM identity or that you identified as a STEM person? Like, I wasn't sure if I ever identified until I got probably probably high school. But I knew I liked, I liked, I always liked my science classes. And those are my favorite classes to be in. But in elementary school, you don't do a lot of science. You don't do science until you get into, well, it was junior high when, when I was in school. 
And, you know, high school, you took chemistry and physics and love chemistry. I loved, I think I took physics too. I, I love those, those topics. I knew I wanted to be a biologist. So I think probably when I got in high schools and when we started just learning more about different things, when like my identity started before then there was, there was nothing like there was nothing that would have me identify with that. The reason why I ask is what I'm noticing for a lot of students, like underrepresented students, but I think of like our girls and students of color, if we do develop a STEM identity, it's usually much later. And so like just from my own lived experience, just like you, I used to love watching like Nova and I loved everything on PBS and I had... You know, we were an immigrant family and we were very poor. And my dad bought like this big old set of like Disney encyclopedias. And I would just like go through them and just like read all the science stuff. It was very fascinating to me. It was definitely an interest for me, but I didn't identify as a science person. I did not identify as a math person. I had some poor experiences with my with my math learning early on. And I decided early on that I was not a math person. Today, I'm not not a math person. I had, to change, I had to reframe my thinking. I had to approach it differently in terms of, hey, you know, this is a problem to be solved. And I am a creative person and creativity is simply problem solving. And I had to reframe it that way. But it took my adult self to do that. Coming back to STEM identity, I just think it's so important for us to create these experiences for our young people to, to see, to feel the joy in STEM, to see the relevance, to talk about STEM with them. And for me, my STEM identity didn't develop until college when I was going to school for my teacher credential. I had my multiple subject and I was taking a course on science pedagogy. And I had a really dynamic professor who was just like a hardcore constructivist, right? We're going to build our knowledge and we learn by doing. And I was hooked. And then he did this activity with us, which is an activity I still do today where, you know, draw what a scientist looks like. Typically, it's usually like an old white dude in a lab coat with a, with a uh, pocket protector holding a beaker or and crazy hair like Albert Einstein. I remember drawing that same character. But by the time I was done with my coursework, I fell in love with science that I went back for my master's in science ed. And now when I draw that character, I draw like, I basically draw myself and I draw like this, this girl with heels and a lab coat. I make sure I put the heels because science is sexy, right? Of course. Yes, it's very sexy. <laughs> it is. It is. Right? And so it's just, it's interesting. I still do this activity with students and they're still drawing the white dude in the lab coat. And wow. I feel like we've come so far. And I hope someone out there can tell me I'm wrong. I want to be wrong. And it would really just make me happy to know that I'm wrong about this. So if, if anyone out there is doing this activity and kids are drawing themselves, that would make my heart so happy because that means we're making progress. And, you know, we're, we're moving forward and developing these positive STEM identities and letting our students know that they can be whatever they want to be. Can I go back to something you said a moment ago? You said something about, I'm not a math person. When you label yourself in such a way, it's so powerful and it's pervasive. That's the way you, you know, your identity in general is established early in life. And I'm wondering, how can we get that content to younger kids that is science? And then perhaps once they are hooked, then it's like, see, now, now you're a scientist. Yeah. So Ella and I, we've been having this long conversation about the scientific method and like how we teach the scientific method. All of my teaching experience has been in secondary and how we teach the scientific method is a very static process. Start here and you end here. Then there are steps in between, get to the end and voila, the thing is over. 
when I did my dissertation on STEM integration and what a STEM integration looks like, I ran into this engineering design process, which was iterative. Like there was, there was a beginning and an end, but that's not where it started. It was like, it was more of a circle than a line. And that circle can sometimes go in reverse. Sometimes it goes forward. Sometimes you start at one position and you end at a totally different position. And the whole piece of science that, and the, the important part of science is inquiry. What type of questions are, you, are we asking? And every kid is very, very inquisitive and they ha- ask tons of questions. And if we can show them how to answer some of these questions in a systematic fashion, but it doesn't have to end there. Like it may bring up more questions and more questions and more questions. You need more discovery. I think that's how you start to fall in love with like the process of discovery. What, what did you call it, Ella? Uh, rigor. There was something with rigor that you said. Yes. I said rigor is a productive struggle. Productive struggle. Yes. yes. Because, I mean, that's yes. what makes you want to keep at it, right? Uh-huh. Like I'm struggling. I'm going to learn this thing. I'm going to figure this out. That is productive struggle. That is rigor. And it only happens when you make the STEM relevant. Whatever it is you're studying, like how are we making this relevant for our students? Just to piggyback on what Tatul was saying, like the scientific method, you know, I I, I have to admit, I'm, I am guilty of this. I did teach it in a linear fashion because we that's we how we did. were taught. Yeah. Exactly. We teach the way we were taught. So we were taught to do it in a linear fashion. You know, looking back now, I realized, no, 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 no. We start with the question, sure, but it is very cyclical, right? Learning is not static. Learning is iterative. We come up with a question, we go through this process, and let's say we didn't prove our hypothesis, we go back and change the variable. So we may not go back to the beginning of the process. We know this is an iterative cycle. Learning is not linear. If you look at language arts, the writing process is not linear either. It's very cyclical. It's Everything is iterative. And we learn through repetition, through trial and error. If I may, I wanted to talk about K-5. This reminds me of my daughter, who is now in fifth grade. From kinder all the way up to second grade before we went into pandemic mode, she strongly identified as a mathematician. She would tell me that she was a mathematician, which made my STEM heart very happy. She told me that when she grew up, she was going to be a mathematician because she loved, she loved taking numbers, just decomposing them and putting them back together, taking the number 25 and doing different, different combinations of the number 25. She was obsessed with that. When she was four, number 19 was her favorite number. It's a very exotic number. So, (laughs) So she was just obsessed with numbers. And I would just, just tell her, wow, you're a mathematician and you're thinking like a mathematician. What you're doing is what mathematicians do. And I think it just comes with telling the kids like how awesome they are at this thing. And even if they are struggling, wow, you know what? You're struggling with this, but that is a productive struggle. That's what scientists do. That's what engineers do. That's what tech experts do. Like whatever expert field, we all engage in productive struggle. And normalizing that struggle, I think is really important because kids are really hard on themselves, right? And I think teachers just have to have those high expectations. I also think that Because we grew up with some deficit language in our teaching, right? And I think we need to disrupt that deficit language and come at our students with an assets-based lens, encourage our students. And if they're doing something that an engineer does, I'm going to tell them that is what an engineer does. Oh my gosh, you are... You are so resilient and you're persevering. Like that, that prototype didn't work out and you went back to redesign it. That's amazing. And just encouraging our students... And just telling them, you know what, 
you can go to college to, to pursue this and pursue a career and let them prove us right. So right. just going back, deficit teaching, what is that exactly? Well, I think more like deficit language. And, you know, it's a very human thing. We're wired for survival. And so we look for the negative so that we can avoid it. And I think as, as adults with good intentions, we'll point out what's not going right. But that's not motivating. I, I believe, you know, just to disrupt the deficit language, we need to point out what the kids are doing right. Because what you, what you focus on, you get more of. If I focus on what the kids are doing right, they're going to want to do it more. And sometimes it's incremental. You know, maybe they're not nailing it right away, but hey, step A, you got that part down. Now you're ready for B. Yeah. And I think for me, when I'm thinking, when I think about deficit thinking, I'm deficit mindset. And when I first started learning about it and it started to make sense and started to, to really understand how detrimental it is to our students. I was just thinking about all of those kids on the fringes, all of those kids who, who we felt didn't have the skill levels or they, they didn't have the attitudes that we wanted. They weren't compliant, right? It was those kids. I had a principal who I swear in a conversation, she said, oh, they're building new apartments down the street and those kids are coming to our school and they're impacting our scores. I was like, wow, wow, that's interesting. Vice principal said this. And you know, back then I was, I was, I was, I was a newer teacher and she said that, but just to think about all those kids in our schools who we think they're not trying hard enough, or maybe God forbid, they're not smart enough, or they don't have what it takes, right? All that language that we, that we put on those kids at the fringes, they hear it, they internalize it. And they act, which, like, like you said, Ella, they act accordingly. And they act according to how we think they should act. That's what they bring to us. And we don't look at their strengths at all. So what strengths do they bring into the class? Nope, he talks too much. He's too loud. He's, he's got straight Fs. Put them over there. And that's, that's, that's the power of that deficit thinking. And on top of that, most of students who look like me and Ella at schools are the ones who we slap this deficit mindset on. And teachers will say, well, Ella's fault. She did it to herself. If she would only do her homework or it's a tool, if he would just come to school and, and if parents cared, he'd be a better student, right? That, that whole thing. Now I'm listening to it. I'm internalizing it. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to keep failing classes. Eventually, I'm going to flunk out. And who knows what's going what's gonna to become of me. Because that's what's expected of us, yeah. right? And so it's really holding that high expectation, high expectation especially for our traditionally marginalized students. Mm-hmm. And Tatul, you really spoke to something there. Like, there's a whole lot of those kids or those parents. And, okay, there are kids, and we need to do them right, because all kids deserve a top-notch public education, and they deserve to be scientifically literate. They deserve to have access to, to knowledge, because they're going to be one day taking care of us and making decisions, and I want them to be able to make well-informed decisions. Also, in terms of like that deficit mindset, there's a whole lot. I mean, that's that's a loaded, <laughs> that's a loaded topic right there because we can oh, go, we, we can go. Yes, that, that's another episode. We can go down a whole rabbit hole with that because that, when you mentioned that building, I just think about like I was probably in that building. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I think growing up, I never had teachers who looked at me and thought, "Oh, she should be a STEM educator one day." That was not what they what they saw when they looked at me. They saw this little Filipino girl. And I think for me, I was told things like, 
oh, well, you know, um, I heard a lot of really racist things, actually. I remember like people tell me, oh, they had really beautiful women in the Philippines. What is the purpose of telling me that? Because that is that is the only value that a, that a Filipino woman has. And it's really about like the objectivity of an Asian woman is what that was about. But never did I hear anything about what I'm capable of as a learner and now educator. Preach. You better preach, Ella. Mm. Yeah. Can I tell you? Oh, I have a story to tell about high school. I was telling this to Tatool. When I was in high school, and I didn't, I didn't care about school at the time because I wasn't expected to do well in high school. That was just kind of like the messaging I got. I wasn't expected to apply for all these colleges like a lot of my other peers. But I remember I had a science class. I actually enjoyed this science class, but we literally watched a video every day. Wow. We literally wow. watched a video every day. This, I think this teacher had one foot in retirement. Literally watched the video every day. I took copious notes and I was a really good note taker. And we would have like a Scantron quiz every Friday. I mean, I got an A in science, but that was not what led me to love science. <laughs> I just wish that I had a more engaging experience because I think I would have had a stronger STEM identity sooner rather than later had, these ex had I had better experiences, some meaningful experiences, had my teacher connected with us. I think I would have had a stronger identity and I think that would have impacted my trajectory. I would have been in a different place. I'm happy where I am, but it took me a little while to get here. Which is interesting because I think for me growing up, my STEM identity was established at a young age. I was told, hey, you're going to become a doctor. And being Asian, that whole stereotype always comes up as like, you should be good at math. And because of that, I internalized it. I'm like, because I'm Asian, I should be good at math. So if I didn't get an A or 100% on math, I would be super, super upset at myself established at a young age. And I think as I grew older, being Asian, I think that pressure started to weigh on me a bit. And then that's when I started falling out of love of science and outside of STEM. Like I went to pre-med because I'm like, okay, my mom wants me to go be pre-med. Everyone else said I should be a doctor. So let me apply. I was pre-med. My first quarter, I was on academic probation already. Second, wow. so, second quarter, like you're on academic probation again. If you don't up your grade or switch your major, you're gone. And so I'm like, okay, look, I'm not feeling it. I don't enjoy the science. I don't enjoy the engineering. I don't enjoy the math, any of that stuff. So I switched to social work and I absolutely loved it. And then I went to education, became a biology teacher. I think I've shared with Scott and my other coworkers, I wasn't very tech user friendly or used a lot of tech in my classes just because I'm like, I had a bad experience with it. Why would I then do it? And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, Ella, we teach the way we were taught. And growing up, technology was barely being integrated in class. So I'm like, we're using a textbook, kids. We're going to have fun. We're going to dissect this. Uh, I think, what were we dissecting at that time? We're going to dissect this frog or dissect this eyeball. We're going to dissect and have fun with it. The kids loved it, but I don't think they loved it, loved it. Like I feel like they should have loved it. And I feel like that's my fault. I was doing it because I enjoyed helping kids learn. But then just going the whole scientific method, I was very off put by that because every single kid would be like, okay, so is this the right answer? And if you really learn the scientific method, it's not about the right answer. It's about the process, right? It's about the process. How did you get there? And the one thing I tried to teach the students, I shifted away from that linear model and I just threw it on the board. I'm like, look, we go in any order you want. If you have a question, start with that question and then figure out what you want to do. If you have a result, figure out how you want to test that result. Once I started to do that, my kids started to really enjoy science because now they're like, hey, I don't have to get a right answer. 
like quote unquote right answer. I always told them, look, any answer you get the end, that's the answer. Because science is all based on theory. It just means 99.9% of the time, it works. That 0.1% of the time, if it didn't get that result, you're still fine because you got a result. That started to push them into this. And that's why when I, I heard about this whole STEM identity, it's like, how do we bring it to our kids? How do we teach it? How do we integrate it? Because for me, going all the way up, going to undergrad, not liking it, and then basically avoiding it until my kids really started to like it. Then I'm like, okay, let me bring it in. Let me bring in games. Let's play chess. Let's play video games and integrate some sort of technology to engage you. How do we do it for our kids? First of all, that's super dope that you were able to like help them to love the scientific method as this nonlinear thing, because as I mentioned earlier, I made the mistake of going full linear. Um, So (laughs) I just think it's super dope. But I will say there's something really exciting about being wrong. That 1%, like 99% to get it right. But there's something super exciting about being wrong because that's how discoveries are made, right? Like I'm wrong. Why did I go? Like, where did we go wrong? Why did that happen? And that's like super exciting. I I like to tell my students the story of like Formula 409. You guys know that one? Formula 409, the cleaner. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, so Formula 409, the cleaner, the reason why it's called Formula 409 is because there were 408 prototypes before it. Wow. I did not (laughs) know that. That's my favorite story. It's not just a clever name. Like that's literally what it was. And so letting students know that, hey, in real life, mistakes happen. We have to normalize it and we have to be okay with it. And I think we're such a perfectionist culture, right? Like we're always striving for perfection, but we just have to learn to let go of that. Now, how does that look? I don't know yet. You know, we just keep plugging away and just helping our students develop that growth mindset and just normalizing failure. That's why I love the engineering design process because like you're gonna have to like you have to have mistakes you have to go back and make improvements to your design or you have to go back and look at okay what went wrong with my design what what's something that i can change and then i'm still working with these constraints and that that's real life and so i love the engineering design process because it's so in line with real life and when students see that what we're doing in school is aligned to their lives and it's relevant then they really embrace it. Like they don't even know they're learning something. They're just like doing this thing in school and having fun. We got to make it relevant to them. And how do we do that? Well, get to know, okay, get to know your kids, find out what rocks their boat. Obviously we have science content we have to teach. We have math content we have to teach. And so it really does take a little bit of homework in the beginning for teachers, right? Like we have to get to know our kids, what sparks their imagination. I know for me, I used to do like, I would survey my kids and it just gave me insight into what they like and what they value. And then just creating a PBL based on that. For example, in terms of technology, to remember the podcast project? Mm-hmm. So in pandemic learning, I, I still had, I was an instructional coach, but I was teaching. So I taught an AVID class and we're in remote learning. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to build community I don't know how to teach online. This is new to all of us. And so we created, like Tatula was my thought partner. I was like, dude, help me out here. Let's talk about this. And so basically I created a 5E hyperdoc. The 5E lesson plan is, forgot my E's. My first E, what's my first E? Engage, explore, explain, elaborate, evaluate. And so I had my 5E's and I had all these links that the kids could click on to get to where they needed. So I had them just, just to, I had them just, I, I curated a list of different podcasts that would that spoke to their interests. I said, all right, off you go. Take 30 minutes and listen to some of these. Some of them are short. Some of them are long. Write a response. And then if you can create a podcast, what would it be about? If you had a story to tell, what would it be? And then from there, 
wrote their own podcast based on a topic of their choosing, but they just had to communicate it to an audience. They had to cater it to an audience. Then create the podcast. Someone has to be the sound engineer. Someone has to edit. Someone has to write the script. Someone has to direct and be the producer. And it just became this really long semester project. It was super dope. It was meaningful. And then they were done during the pandemic. Lockdown. So, yeah, yeah. But that was a relevant. that was amazing. That was amazing. And I was just thinking about Christopher, how you, your your example and how you were forced in this in this this like little box, right? You have to be pre-med. But I mean, there's so many things our kids can do in the STEM field, right? You don't have to go pre-med. You could have been a sound engineer because you like music, or you could have been into coding because you liked video games, or you could have, right? There's there's so many different avenues that our kids can uh, investigate. And I think we need to give them that freedom to investigate. We need to give our kids that opportunity to spark those interests and not just chemistry. I'm thinking second, secondary now, chemistry, physics, what else? What other courses we take? Environmental science, maybe. science, yep. Biology. Biology. That's it. Maybe a coding class. Is there a computer science class? Is there an engineering class? Like coding is that? high school, right? Coding yeah, yeah. is high school, yeah. yeah. Generally. How many, how many schools have the coding opportunity? We don't give those kids those opportunities. So now you go to college, world's your oyster, I'm only going to take, you know, I'm going to go down this one road because someone told me or my parents told me or someone pressured me into taking this. But, yo, I could be a sound. I can go communications and be a sound engineer. Yo, sign me up. And that's where they flourish, giving them those different opportunities to touch on those science brains and then, or STEM brains. And then what Ella said earlier, make sure that they know that, yeah, oh, that's, that's, that, that, that's a wonderful, you know, you could be a, well, you know you can you know you can you know you can do this, you know you can do that, and give them that confidence and they continue to see that confidence, they continue to see these successes in the things that they're doing. I think those that's the direction we need to be moving in. Do you think part of that too, sorry, it's it's with STEM, there are so many career opportunities out there, but how many do we really know and how do we promote them? When I taught Avid, my favorite thing to do was just bring in guest speakers, right? And I was really intentional about about who my guest speakers were. I wanted my students to see professionals who look like them because I want them to see the possibility. Like if I don't, you know, we can't, we can't be what we don't see. And I had this one speaker, he was actually, so I have avid tutors and one of my tutors' boyfriend was a data analyst for a baseball team in Texas. I don't speak baseball, but whoever is there, <laughs> he worked for them. He's a data, a data analyst. And he basically, he loved baseball. Like when he spoke to my students, he said, I love baseball. I love the Dodgers. That was his life. And he just always wanted to work in baseball. And then he said, but I suck at baseball. I'm also really good with numbers. And he ended up taking all these stats and data courses. And then lo and behold, one day there's this position and it's, it's data. There is a name for it. And I wish I had written it down before logging in. But he basically works for this baseball team and he helps them with their batting averages. And he is like on the field with the baseball team. And so he's living his dream. He told my students, whatever it is that you're passionate about, just hold on to it. Don't let go of that dream because there are so many STEM possibilities in everything, right? He connected STEM to sports. I did not see that coming. And I thought that was super dope. There are careers out there, and this has been said since the 2000s, there are careers out there that don't even exist yet. Like ChatGPT, like AI is very scary. Again, 
it's a powerful tool and there's so many possibilities. Mm -hmm. So, and who knows what careers are going to stem from all of that. One of the big things with my kids now, I got to have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old is that I want them to know kind of where that, what they're good at, where their passions are and everything else can fall in, in you learning math. Yo, math is going to be a part of your process. You're learning history. It's a part of your 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 passion. You're learning this, right? You can you can put your passion into any of that. But if we're we're just walking through the motions and we're never ever passionate about anything, then we have a bunch of zombie kids walking around campuses. And yeah, and it's that. all connected. It's all connected, right? We just have to be. I think intrinsically we know that it's all connected, but we tend to go into the classroom and segment these things because we have our instructional minutes. We want to make yeah. sure we covered you know, our reading blog and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But like, we have to be really intentional about making those connections and helping mm -hmm. our students to see those connections. And then eventually they start showing you the connections, which is really cool. We just have to remember that learning is not siloed. And so mm -hmm. we have to make those really explicit connections. That's the fun part. Uh, for me. I mean, that's the fun of lesson planning, right? It's like, oh, I have to take all these standards. And I'm speaking from a multiple subject perspective. I got to take my reading standards, my math, science, and history standards, and PE and art, and create something that is going to connect everything and make the, the learning meaningful for all of our students. But just how amazing is that if they understand that what they're doing in math and science is relevant to to their world? Uh, how awesome would that be if like the math they're doing does feed into a science project or knowing history, how that impacts where we live, how we live. I think of like the natural connections between history and science. Like we have a very checkered past. Sure. And that in itself is very interesting. And by middle school and high school, the conversations get real deep. And so, you know, we also need to be sure we're giving our kids that opportunity to have those conversations because we can have some real, real critical conversations too. Like when we think of environmental science, environmental racism, we really just got to like open these avenues for our kids earlier rather than later. I like how you both are talking about cross-curricular just because I also started with a multiple subject and then I evolved and I got my single subject. There is a huge difference in the way you process everything from a multiple subject versus a single subject. True. And right now I'm, I'm working with a teacher candidates at Pepperdine. And the last project I gave them, it blew their minds because I'm working with single subject. I told them they had to collaborate with all of each other to create a station rotation model that encompasses all of their subjects. So right. I had English, history, math, and you just, they just look lost. They were like, what do we do? How do we do this? Because they're so used to thinking in their own silos. And the moment I said, here's the start. You saw all the doors slowly unlocked. They were just very frustrated during this process. But at the end of it all, they said, thank you for having us do that because it forces us to think outside the box and it forces us to think about the other mm -hmm. subjects and how to connect with the others. And I think after they did that, they're like, I need to work with the other departments more. I need to work with the math teachers more. I need to work with the science teacher more. I love that you are preparing teachers to collaborate with each other. And, um, and learn to integrate because I think that's really where it begins right now in our teacher prep programs. Like what Tatul and I were talking about, like we taught the way we were taught. But in a teacher prep program, here's this opportunity to bring all this innovation and show it to our pre-service teachers now so that they can go into the classrooms and really innovate learning for our students. And I just think that's such a great experience for, for your teachers to have, to have gone through because now they understand. 
And it's not easy. I'm not going to lie. It's not, but you're pushing their thinking and that's just going to make them so much more amazing when they're out there. You know what I wonder, Ella? And I've asked a few teachers, like folks who I, I, I work with in the past, but I always wonder, so those students who were, those teachers, pre-service teachers who were in your class, Christopher, they did this great collaborative project. Then they might take that idea onto a school site. But like once you get to your past your third, your fourth, your fifth, your 10th year, do you ever get those opportunities to do that type of work again? Or you do it once when you're pre-service, you get all these great tools and whatever. And then once you get into the classroom, you get entrenched. Mm. So here's the thing. That's something that I'm noticing because now I'm at a, at a district position and I have my lenses has widened. Right. So one thing I'm noticing is that there is very little collaboration time. And that's something that I don't know if that's across districts, but that's what I hear. Right. And so we really need to have that intentional collaboration time because like we can't expect our students to do what we're not doing ourselves. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so how do we bring that? Like these are this is a greater conversation to be had. But I think we have to create systems that allow teachers to collaborate and really develop that cultural collaboration. Because like these are 21st century skills. We're like 23 years into the century now. Right. (laughs) We should be collaborating. And I see very I don't see as much opportunity opportunity to do that now. We have taken a few steps backward because the pandemic did put us on pause. A lot of great innovation has come from being in lockdown. I have to say some of my best teaching happened in lockdown. (laughs) A lot of my best lessons learned happened then because just like in, in the engineering design process, there were a lot of constraints put on us. And we got very creative. And so how do we bring back that creativity and how do we bring in the collaboration with our teachers? Even elementary teachers are kind of siloed because they're locked in a room for six hours with the same kids all day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I I wouldn't even know how to touch that. Intentional planning. And like we talk about this identity piece, Mm -hmm. like what does that look like at all levels? Absolutely. And how do we make sure we infuse that? Because I'm just thinking about like, I'm not sure if I've ever done any kind of co-teacher. Well, I had a co-teacher, which was mm-hmm. the best experience of my career. I, I was with a co-teacher. She was super smart. Oh, my gosh. She was so smart. And we came up with a lot of really good lessons. And I could just imagine had we had the lens of, like, STEM identity, how could we have sprinkled that into some of our best, like, best lessons I ever taught was with her. And being able to put those things in there so the kids can not only learn the biology and the things we're trying to teach them, but also connect with with some of this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so, I, I, so I think there has to be an intentionality, like you're saying, Ella, mm-hmm. create the space and the schedule. Because we do a lot of stuff. Like, a friend, like I know the district, we have professional development every Monday or Monday, right? Correct. Mondays, we do professional developments. Like, you know, the space is there to, to be, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus, but like, but other schools don't have that. Other schools don't have that same level of flexibility in their schedule. So how do we create that and follow up with support for the teachers to make sure this is happening and they're getting all the supports that they need? And I want to just add to that as well. Like identity work is really important. And so for in order for teachers to be able to do this like positive identity building with our students, teachers have to stop and take a look at themselves. We need to understand our identity and how our identity and positionality impact those in our room and those that we interact with. Because that is huge. Identity work begins with the self. Now, that's hard work. 
That's really hard work on top of all the content, right? So one thing I have to say, I just got to brag about my school district for just a moment, if I may. Definitely go for it. <laughs> Pasadena Unified School District, we have, we have been embarking on anti-racism training for the entire school district. And I think it's so important for our teachers to engage in this. It's mandatory training for every teacher in the district. And we're now in year two of anti-racism training. And what does that look like? It's really about understanding white supremacy and racism and understanding that this system was not created for all students, right? And so how, how do we navigate that? And then also a lot of identity work within ourselves. So right now, all the work is on teachers working on themselves because some questions that come up is, well, what do I do with the kids? Hold on. That's great. I know you want to go there and work with the kids on this, but we got to work on ourselves too. And that just kind of connects to something I said at Spring Q, like when it comes to developing STEM identity, we need to interrogate our, we need to interrogate our own STEM identity. We need to interrogate our own identity and how, how we navigate in our spaces. And is the way I navigate my space helping my students grow? Is it, am I benefiting my students or is is how I navigate possibly hurting my students. And if so, what do I need to change mm -hmm. to, to be better for them? I also want to add, I feel like instructional coaching is really beneficial for, for teachers. And I know a lot of pre-service teachers have mentors during induction, but even after that, I feel like coaching, having a coaching relationship is super important because typically the coach will, will try to stay steady. Like I always think of the analogy of the, the thermometer and the thermostat. The thermometer, the temperature is going to go up and down. You're going to have your highs and lows. And sometimes when you're low, you just go low. And the coach is sort of like the thermostat. I'm going to keep a steady temperature. Like I'm not, you're going to vent, but I'm not going to go down that road with you. I'm going to bring you back up here. Ella mentioned uh, constructivism early on. And, you know, one of the tenets of constructivism is multiple perspectives. And I think we all benefit when we get these multiple perspectives. And as teachers, we are are in our tunnels. We you know, don't get a chance to collaborate. And then when we do talk with teachers, they do uh, often end up as basically venting sessions. And the true collaboration is rare. So, so I do I do think the multiple perspectives is is very beneficial. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking as an instructional coach. I just think that I like having I like being able to talk to someone who's been there, but who's also not going to like go down this negative road with me. The last question I have for both of you, what is the power of an identity? What is the power of identity in STEM? What is the power of identity of how you identify yourself? It's your North Star, right? It's what guides you. And there's a lot of things, bumps in the roads, roads, bumps in the road. And, you know, unforeseen circumstances, maybe great things, not so good. But that identity is what keeps you going. So well said, your North Star. For me, identity, I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's like, it's who you are, right? And it helps us having an identity, like that shapes our values, our beliefs, our behaviors. It's um, our identity gives us a sense of belonging, right? And so I just think the power of identity is really the power of belonging. And I think everyone just wants to feel accepted, respected supported and included. And so identity is crucial for that. Having a, a STEM identity means that we have access to, to understanding the world 
and navigating the world and also expressing how we experience the world. Well said. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invite. This was really fun. Thank Thank you. The Tech Lasso podcast is produced by the ITO coordinator team. We are part of the Technology Learning and Support Services Department at the Los Angeles County Office of Education. This work is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. And use our response form to be considered for inclusion in future episodes. Let us know what you're thinking. Also, share your thoughts via Twitter at LACO underscore ITO and on Facebook at LACO ITO. Follow us on LinkedIn at LACO ITO. Thank you.